morning or good afternoon, wherever you are, depending on where you are. My laptop crashed right before broadcast, so my apologies for the last minute panic. My name is Ian Heller. I'll be your co-host today for Wholesale Change, the webcast and podcast from Distribution Strategy Group, where we provide thought leadership for wholesale change agents like you. If you're on this call, you very probably are a wholesale change agent. Let me welcome in now the tower of analytical power, the doctor of distribution, the genius, the madman. Please. <laughs> From Heller, the compeller. <laughs> Jonathan Byne, PhD. How you doing today, Jonathan? On the side of the lawn, man. How about you? I'm doing great. You know, it's funny that things like a laptop crash seem like such a you know, serious thing. But in the reality, it's like, it's really not that big a deal. But holy cow, you got people waiting for you to present. You just feel panic struck, you know? Here's what's serious. When you don't have internet, that's serious. I'd rather give up an appendage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think most people are like that these days. And if they're not, then after three days with no internet, they'd say, I changed my mind. My left arm can go. I don't use it that often. Exactly. I've got two anyhow. Exactly. <laughs> Although I may, I may give up a, a leg so I can still type. All right, so we've got an interesting uh, topic today. It's the customer life cycle and the brand graveyard. Um, so, you know, the brand graveyard is a branding term that was coined by Young and Rubicom of Europe a long time ago. And then I read about it and learned about it when I took a class from David Akers at Northwestern about advertising. But it's got real implications for distributors because I think, frankly, most distributor brands are in the brand graveyard. So shall we jump in? Let's go for it. Okay, so this is the model as drawn. This is actually from David Akers' book, but it's as drawn by Young and Rubicom. And uh, so this is kind of interesting because it shows a correlation on a two-by-two two matrix between, well, I guess not really, it's two, two, by two axes, an X and Y axes, between recognition and recall. So um, recognition means I recognize that brand. I think I understand it. I don't really necessarily need more information, which is when you're in the brand graveyard. Recall is when I'm in a moment where I need something, I actually think of that brand, right? So, you know, for example, if uh, you're a uh, uh, industrial distributor and you sell belting, well, you might sell a lot of other belting as well, but the, you know, the, prob the, the problem is that people only think of you for belting, right? So what I've seen is that an awful lot of distributors, you know, they, they, they have a, a brand position in their customers' minds, but it's only one and it's pretty niched and narrow. And so, but because customers think they know all about the brand, they're not really open for more information. They don't feel it's necessary for them to expend the effort to get more information about it. You know, so for example, there are a lot of people uh, for whom certain brands of cars are off the table. They just wouldn't consider buying one, right? So let's say that, you know, you as a consumer, you know, you, you're probably not ever going to walk into a Chevrolet dealership. Right. So it doesn't really matter what they do with their lineup because you're not listening to their ads. You're not really interested in their models. You've got this paradigm of what Chevrolet is. And, you know, really, no matter what advertising they do, it just doesn't make you go in and look at the latest, you know, Tahoe or uh, Malibu or whatever, because you're just you define that brand as something that you're not ever going to consume. Right. And maybe for you, that brand's not Chevy, it's Hyundai or Mercedes or whatever. You know, the reality is that everybody's got brands in their lives that are in the graveyard. You know all about them. At least you think you do. You know enough about them. You're not really willing to put in more uh, effort to learn more about them. And, and here, here's in your Chevy example where that shifts. 
Um, so they come out with a new electric car and that gets my attention. And then I do the research in the electric car and then I decide yes or no. In that case, I decided no, the, 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 the value, the price value wasn't worth it, but that was enough to, to startle me, to shake me up, to reconsider their brand. Yeah, they got back on the consideration set because if you saw an ad for a brand new electric car, that would be startling right. no matter who it was from. Mm-hmm. Right. So it would, it would claim your attention even if it was from a brand you wouldn't normally consider. Correct. And, and frankly, I think you can go a little broader with this. I know many, many people who said, I would never buy an American car. So they had a bad experience or the parents did, right? And they just classify American cars as unreliable, right? Now, if you look at the data, the Asian cars are the most reliable. The American cars are next. The European cars across the board are the worst, right? I mean, from Volvo, and we have a Volvo to a Mercedes to a BMW to an Audi. They're by far the least reliable, but people give them a pass on that because they think they have other attributes. But there are a lot of people for whom American branded cars are in the brand graveyard because they, they, they think of them as less reliable. Many of those people will nonetheless buy a Tesla, which is a very American car. I mean, it's made in that bastion of liberalism, California in the mm-hmm. Bay Area, because only Elon Musk thinks you can assemble cars with labor in the Bay Area, right? But it's an American car. It's very American, very high content of US, uh, US made, uh, or very high US made content. But it was not in that brand graveyard because the overriding characteristic of Tesla was different. It wasn't that it was American. It was that it was from Elon Musk and it was innovative and it was breakthrough, right? It was not Detroit. Yeah, it was not Detroit. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, right. You know, so I think, you know, in my experience with distributors is it's very common that your customers have a paradigm about what it is that you sell and they just don't really think of you for other stuff. And so even if you sell it, you know, you, you, they, they just don't either know or they don't really care. And so let's jump into some, do you want to say anything else on this chart before we move on? Well, so I think the question though is, so we're talking about consumer, our focus is in the B2B. How do you think, how do bland, brands play out differently in the B2B world versus the consumer world, which is where we think more about brands, which is where most of the theory of branding comes from, right? Yes. Yeah. So here's what I think is different in B2B. B2B brand impressions are based generally on more rational attributes than emotional attributes. And the same is often not true of consumer brands. Okay, so people often consume consumer brands because it makes a statement about their identity. I only drive a Ford pickup or I only, you know, buy uh, uh, environmentally friendly products, whether or not I know that they are, you know, that that's part of my identity. Um, You know, I'm a consumer of being, I buy Harley Davidson's because the way it makes me feel about myself, right? I mean, those are very emotional decisions. You can't really quantify them as being rational. But I think here's what happens in B2B. And we should probably do a segment on the brand matrix sometime. Yep. Because generally speaking, and this is true B2B and consumer, but it, apply, it happens more in B2B. The larger a transaction gets. So when you're talk, not talking about, you know, making a decision in a grocery store about peanut butters, right? You're talking about like, you know, buying a car or a house as a consumer or making a capital purchase as a B2B buyer. As transaction sizes get larger, two dynamics change that make the role of branding less important. One is people start applying analytical tools, right? So I'm thinking about buying a hundred new trucks. Well, you know, I'm not just going to make a decision based on who likes what brand. I'm going to make the decision based on 
fuel economy and reliability and ability to get warranty and service and uh, initial cost versus ownership cost. And someone's got a spreadsheet of the different truck brands and those factors laid out. And whenever you bring analytical tools like that, then the subjective branding and branding is, you know, the whole purpose of branding is to build a prejudice, a bias for my brand. Um, you know, the, the, the bigger the transaction and when you apply analytical tools, it takes away that emotion. That's the very, that's the very goal of that exercise of doing a spreadsheet is making it objective. The second thing that happens is you get multiple decision makers involved, right? So if you have a purchase, you're going to have a purchasing committee making a decision about those hundred trucks. So it doesn't matter that the Mitsubishi guy is really brand loyal or the woman who loves GMC is loyal to GMC or someone likes Ford or whatever, ultimately those wash out because you have multiple decision makers involved. So bigger transactions are inherently harder to influence with branding per se in most cases. Right. So actual value takes precedence in that case over relationship or brand loyalty, right? So if, it, if I have a relationship with a salesperson or relationship with the brand, the actual value is going to take precedence. Whereas in some of these other cases, um, the emotion or the relationship will take precedence over value. Right. People are becoming more value conscious, right? That started in 2008. Um, there was a company that came up with the term um, frugalnomics. Frugalnomics is the word I'm looking for, where everybody is now more frugally looking at things and frugalnomics are here to stay, right? right? That lens of looking at stuff from a financial perspective more and less from a relationship perspective. But it's been more like that in B2B all along versus consumer. That's right. And I think another thing that happens, another big difference between B2B and consumer is in consumer, most of the brand impression is driven by advertising messages. Okay. Right. So, I'm, you know, nobody can tell that. No, I probably shouldn't say that. Most people can't tell the difference between major brands of beer, right? I mean, you, they think they can, but put a Miller and a Budweiser and a Coors and a whatever in glasses with no labels on it. People can't pick them out, but people have these strong associations because they've consumed advertising that says that's the kind of beer for people like me. And in B2B that, that the brand loyalty is really functional. It's like, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm trying to run my business. They get me deliveries faster. The sales reps more knowledgeable. I like, you know, they make it easy for me to do business with them. They have a better assortment. You know, your brand loyalty is really based on more functional attributes. So you, they may be loyal to the brand, but it tends to be a more rational, uh, not entirely, but more, a more rational association and loyalty. So I think those are some differences between B2B and B2C branding. So I think the first thing that uh, distributors need to ask in this regard is, is your brand in the graveyard? And so I think there are some things you can look at in transactions that are pretty good indicators, right? So if your customers buy a small number of product categories, they probably got you niched as their supplier of those categories. They just don't think of you for other types of products. In my experience, and this is my opinion, but if they don't buy accessories, then they are only thinking of you as a supplier of a specific category because they're not coming to you for the small purchases that happen in between the big buys, right? So if they buy an air compressor from you and they do it every five years, right? When their other one breaks, but then they don't buy air tools and hose and air compressor oil and all that stuff in the middle, then they probably just have you niched as an air compressor supplier and then and they run somewhere else to get accessories. And that applies, you know, with in whether it's electrical products or pneumatics or power tools or whatever. And then the third one is 
they tend to buy relatively infrequently. Yeah, and I, I would say of those three sub sub points, uh, small number of product categories, not buying accessories infrequently, you can have good customers who buy a small set of products on a periodic basis relative to the size of their business. So you might have somebody that buys from you daily, maybe a couple times a week, maybe weekly, bi-weekly, uh, monthly, quarterly, and they're buying a very, very narrow set of SKUs. They're buying in a regular, periodic, predictable pattern. Okay, that's fair. Uh, but, but the key thing is that they're buying a small number of product categories. And for even small distributors, um, small distributors typically carry thousands, if not tens of thousands of SKUs, right? Yes. Um, so you literally have thousands of other things that you could be selling them. Um, but they've got you slotted into this particular view. We spoke in a prior episode about this. Our former colleague, Jim Tenzillo, do you remember what Jim said? Uh, that they customer, you don't just segment customers, they segment you. Customers segment you, right? right. Um, and that's, that's really what goes on here. They think of this supplier as the supplier for fasteners, and this supplier is the supplier for cutting tools, and this supplier is the supplier of of pick the category, right. um, not realizing that even small distributors carry thousands, if not tens of thousands of additional um, items. Yeah. And I tell you, and I've mentioned this in another episode, but I think it really applies here. When you, when you work for a distributor and you walk through a distributor facility with a customer, much of the time they'll say something like, Hey, when did you start carrying Campbell household compressors? Or when did you start carrying Square D, or when did you start carrying, you know, uh, ITW, whatever. And very often the answer is, you know, since we founded the freaking company, right? We've been carrying it for 10 years, 20 or 50 years, right? But that, they, that's not in their paradigm about what you are as a distributor. And so they don't come to you for that stuff. They don't even know where you carry it. Now, if you ask that person, how familiar are you with that distributor's offering? They'd probably say, oh, I, I, I'm really familiar with it. I mean, I really know them. I'm in there all the time, which is another thing so, is. So that's a marketing fail, right? When, yeah. when, when, when you do that tour of the warehouse and they say, I didn't know that's yes. a, that's a marketing fail. Yeah. And I want to distinguish that from like, if non-customers, if non-prospects don't know what you carry, who cares? Right. I mean, if you're, if you sell industrial belting, then it doesn't matter if your neighbor, the high school teacher knows that what your company does by the name, because they're not a prospect. So you want to make sure you're actually, you know, testing this with prospects, not with people who are not in your target set. But I'll tell you, this universal thing, I've seen this over and over again. Customers think they're bigger than they are, right? And so you'll go to a customer and they'll go, oh, we love you guys. We buy everything from you. And you go, well, you look like you're about a $40 million company and you did $8,000 last year with us. So pretty sure you're not buying everything you can. But customers think they are because they're buying everything that they can given their paradigm about what it is that you sell. They're not buying everything they can compared to what you really sell. And that applies to services and products. They don't know what you carry. I think one of the worst assumptions, the lethal assumptions that marketers make and distributors make is they think their customers know what they do. They think their customers know what they sell. They think their customers know what they offer. And the reality is they're not on the consideration set 90% of the time when that customer is looking for something that they sell. 
one other thing we should throw in here, which is something we, we both know and love, it's it's not just products. They're, they're, they're probably services that you provide that they don't Absolutely. Know that provide, right? Absolutely. You, you, that's right. Yeah. Whether it's assembly or kidding or labeling or whatever, they don't have any idea. They just don't know. And they think they do. There's no ill will here, right? I mean, these customers may love you. And that's really the next point, which is don't mistake a very high net promoter score, a, a, a very high level of customer loyalty with that having an impact on purchase frequency. They may love you for that little tiny niche that they buy from you. That doesn't mean they're going to buy more often if they don't need that thing more often. So I give, I give an example. When I was a branch manager at Granger um, 163 years ago, we had this, you know, over the phone telesales contest, you know, at, we called that the add on Apples. It was like a race, you know, there were these little cars on the wall and you could move them on the, you know, it was the add on Apples, right? And so I had this guy named Bill who was an absolutely fearless seller. And one day this customer called out who ordered this commercial water heater. It was like $1,400. So Bill being a sales machine, so, you know, well, Mr. Customer, if you buy three, they're $1,100 or whatever. The guy goes, oh, okay, I'll take three. So Bill went at it again. Well, actually, if you buy six, they're $1,042. And I said, oh, okay, I'll take six. That guy had no idea that we would have discounts on commercial water heaters. As it turns out, he owned a, a, a group of apartment buildings. He needed these all the time. And, you know, so we sent a sales rep out to this account who'd never bought much from us before um, and wound up becoming his main, uh, sell, main supplier of water heaters. Well, guess how that guy had Granger pegged? That's the supplier that I go to in an emergency. Mm-hmm. That's the brand graveyard that Granger was in. Mm-hmm. His other supplier was out of water heaters. So he came to Granger because it was an emergency. He was okay with overpaying because he understood it was an exception. And then thanks to Bill, you know, my super salesman, he wound up becoming like, I don't know, 40 or $50,000 a year account, which isn't gigantic, but it's a heck of a lot better than, you know, 2000 a year. And that was his paradigm. Granger's my, my supplier of last resort in emergencies. And thanks to Bill, we converted him into a big customer. So what is a zombie brand then? Is that something that's been resurrected? I've never heard that term. So you'll have to, you'll have to I just me. made it up Ian. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's not good though. Whatever it is, I okay. double tap to the head. Okay, so now this question is, how do you get out of the brand graveyard, right? And so we're going to show you one really fun example here. But to get out of the brand, about out of the brand graveyard, first you have to have startling messaging, right? It's like your Chevrolet as the has the new electric car, right? Or uh, you know, so the brand needs to advertise something to you that is startling. It like breaks the mold for what you know about that brand, and it's so startling that it catches your attention. And I wonder how many distributors have any strategy around this at all. Uh, I think we know the answer. Yeah. They, they, well, they, they don't know the problem, right? right? They don't know that they're stuck in the brand graveyard. They, they have these data points. Man, you know, customers always think they're bigger than they really are. And you know, every time I walk through a, a facility with a customer, they always ask me about stuff that we carry like it's brand new. We've been carrying it forever. I bet you there's nobody on this call who's got a lot of experience with a distributor who hasn't experienced one or both of those on a regular, on a pretty regular basis. Oh, we got a great comment here. Zombie brand is when your trademark or licensing is purchased through bankruptcy and then bastardized into direct to consumer selling. (laughs) (laughs) So let me think, okay. So when your trademark or licensing is purchased through bankruptcy and then bastardized into direct to consumer selling. So let's think of one. I mean, there's gotta be somebody out there that we can think of like some tool company, right. That, 
used to be a proud purveyor of top quality products. And it's like those Bell and Howell radios that you, I, that's, that's one. I think there's a Bell and Howell emergency radio that used to be a proud brand of projection equipment and stuff. And it just became a consumer brand. Right. And GE too, for that matter, that wasn't purchased through bankruptcy though. Oh, somebody says Goldblatt. What's Goldblatt? I don't know, but I'll take his word for it. Well, I, th I think we may have a, a, a fresh set of candidates that are actually already consumer brands. If you just look at the number of significant retail brands that are, that are filing bad chapters, chapter odd number, um, as a result of COVID, we're going to have a whole bunch of candidates. Right. So um, comment from Marshall. Couldn't agree more on this idea of the customer segmenting you as a supplier. I was a buyer early in my career and I had a short stint as a buyer for a plumbing contractor and I absolutely thought of suppliers as suppliers of certain lines. There you go. So we've got one data point to prove what we've yeah. been saying here, right? We, and it's one. Uh, if press, I probably couldn't name 25% of the lines they stock. That's a great quote right yeah, there. It sure is, supplier yeah. A was my guy for cast iron, supplier B was my guy for plastic pipe and fittings and supplier C was for fixtures. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Joe has said, uh, I think is an example of a brand that got uh, destroyed and consumerized tools for masonry that got sold, resold and sold again, SWK. Um, and then Phil, good friend of the show. Hi, Phil. Uh, you want to read this one, Jonathan? Sure. I participated in a telemarketing department early in my career at a major regional industrial distributor. Purpose was to quote unquote, remind our customers of lines or product categories they didn't purchase from us. That's basically cross-selling, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we're talking about here is expanding the concept in the customer's mind of what you sell and having the analytic information necessary to, to do effective cross-selling. That's the holy grail for the vast majority of distributors is how to effectively cross-sell. Yeah, and actually, sorry, go ahead. Please. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's more, I think it's even bigger. I think that's absolutely an essential part of the solution. But you know, the reality is you've got to remind people that you sell entire lines of goods, right? Now you mm -hmm. can use cross-selling as the path to get there. Right. Also, I think there's an advertising challenge here. You know, it's funny because um, you, know, you think about like the really successful distributors and it's no mystery what they have to sell, right? I mean, it, in, in, in a lot of less sophisticated marketing distributors, and that's big and small, it's like they're it's like their branch is a vault, right? I mean, it's hard to get in. You get smoke glass windows, you know, one door's locked, which is my biggest pet peeve in the world for any customer facility. One door's locked. And uh, so you swing through the other door and you, know, you go inside, there's a little bit of stuff on display, but not a lot. And that's not so much the way anymore, but there used to be this sort of attitude of, you know, so what makes you think you're qualified to buy from us? You know, that you would get in some cases. And I think, you know, you got to throw open a kimono and show everything you got, man. You got to, you got to have stuff on display. You need to have uh, uh, catalogs that, I mean, it could be an electronic catalog and, and email and, and open houses. And it's really hard to measure the ROI on that stuff, but you've got to break down these paradigms that people have about what you sell. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of it has a push flavor, by the way, an outbound flavor as opposed to an inbound flavor, right? Because when somebody yes. is searching, they're searching for something specific. If you come up, great. But part of how you shift the mindset is, to your point, constantly refreshing the mental images, putting stuff in front of them. Yeah, organic SEO is just a modern version of a catalog, right? I mean, when I need it, I could pull that catalog from behind my desk and look it up. 
and, mm-hmm. and, and it was a huge advantage to companies that had big catalogs. And now there's a huge advantage to people that are very, very good with e-commerce and online marketing. So another comment, digital marketing would be a channel for cross-selling. Have to catch the user slash purchaser early in product discovery when it's primarily digital research. In other words, before attribute sourcing and the introduction of sales to the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. You've got to, you've got to be there early and catch them early. And especially with generational turnover now, more than ever, that means digital, right? 100%. Okay. All right. Now, you know, to maintain that brand, your product and service has to live up to the messaging. We talked about that in uh, B2B and, and you don't want to be too generic with your messaging. So you ready to move on to our fun example? Let's go for it. All right. So this is a startling ad. So fast pod. So this is from fast and all, obviously bringing you product where you need it, when you need it. So, you know, look at the image there. It's a container with a door on it. It's not a fastener or a branch or a branch. Right. And so if you see this, I mean, you're, you know, if you, you may, if, if you have fast and all in the brand graveyard, you know, and you talked about this, Jonathan, before we were on the air, you know, they're a fastener supplier, right? It's hard to disassociate the word fastener from the name of the company Fastenal. Okay, but, but right. it is what it is. They can't change it now, right? right? So they need to redefine the meaning. And putting that name on a container that says products on demand, so it's intriguing, right? So if you're involved in you know, industrial buying, when you see this, it's probably going to stop you and make you look at it, correct? That's a terrific tagline, products on demand. I mean, you think of like something on tap, right? Uh, on demand is is a really powerful tagline. On tap, yeah, that's a that's a fall staff, not fast and all. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, that's a stretch. That's okay. a stretch. I've done better. Um, okay, so but I think this is a very startling ad, and it makes it change. It challenges your paradigm about what fast and all is. So if, even if you think they're just a, a fastener, per, you know, a per, purveyor, if that's your paradigm of them, or if you've bought a lot from them. This is no longer about product. This is about a whole new channel. And I think, it, I think it does a really nice job of, you know, making you look, right? And, and re, you know, certainly makes you, ha- makes you realize that there's something, you know, very different about this company than what your paradigm was, right? Right. Or even if you think they're primarily a vending machine, which is a, potentially a part of the solution, as it says on the inside storage options there. This right. is helping break that paradigm of product categories and or vending. This is, a, this is a very different type of offering. Right. But we want to have a little fun with this, right? Okay. Please. Now, and, and so, you know, look, we have, I think it's obvious we have a high regard for Fastenal and we, you know, we're featuring this ad because we think it's effective. But we got to tell you that the tagline, bringing you product where you need it, when you need it, has been done before. It's a little bit, it's a little bit hackneyed. <laughs> But as I was just saying before the show, this might actually be the one case where it applies. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the question is, is it, is it hackneyed? Like I just said, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just so universally important that it's still worth using. Mm-hmm. In any case, it's been used for a long time. So we just for fun went and searched for, you know, we did some deep dive research here. Right. And we found a couple of ads. One's 99 years old. The other one's hundred years old that use some variation of this theme of product, wherever you want it, when you want it, you know, what you want. So this is uh, Building Supply News from 1921, and there's an ad there, and embedded in the ad is a promise that you get what you need, or excuse me, you get what you want when you want it, right? Which is a variation on the theme. And then this, this is fun. Now, (laughs) 
So this is a uh, uh, an ad from uh, 1920, May 1920, The Timber Man. Okay, it, there's a you can't see the whole ad here. I actually have it. If you want it, send, send me a note. I'll send you the PDF of it. It's pretty funny. So this Simon's Manufacturing here, what you can't see is they're advertising a cannon that's being used in World War One or was used in World War One, right? There are steel was used in in naval cannons, <laughs> and and so a hundred years ago. This company, Coastal, which was a, uh, a distributor of products for, uh, you know, uh, companies that did that that uh, cut down trees and made lumber, what you want, when you want it, where you want it. There is a hundred, more than a hundred years ago. Now there could be, you know, maybe, maybe there's some, you know, caveman purveyor who has this uh, chiseled on a wall somewhere in caveman language, but this is the oldest one we could find, and I think it makes the point that this has been around a while. Yeah. And uh, does that make it bad? I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably time for some updated language, but it is kind of interesting. And then you did a little separate research, Jonathan. You want to tell us about this? Yeah, Ian was talking about the deep research we did. So in quotes, we put into a search engine what you need when you need it. And then out of quotes, we put the word distribution. We got more than a million hits. That doesn't mean it was the tagline of a million distributors, but it means that it was important enough that it showed up in a search engine more than one million times. Um, and if you put, you know, what you need when you need it and you put supply in or supplier, you probably find some huge number of hits. So the, the point is that it's possible that this is the right messaging for your business, but you have to realize there's a lot of noise around that. And, um, you know, we actually looked at a number of other taglines. Would, would it make sense to cover some of the other ones that, that Ian, you and I came up with that should be avoided as positioning. Yeah, like uh, X number of SKUs. Yeah, we carry X number of products. Okay, right. well, um, you know, unless you are the, the top dog, the 800 pound gorilla, pick whatever animal, animal metaphor you want in your space, you probably don't carry the most SKUs in your space. So you, if you want to message on quantity of SKUs, it might need to be around a subset. It might be we carry the most from the supplier or we carry the most from this brand or we're exclusive or we carry more product lines or we carry more with any product line than some of the bigger players. Yeah. But just the sort of coarse number of, of SKUs um, is probably not a meaningful way to, to, to differentiate. I tell you, there are a lot of distributors out there and their claim on their homepage is more than 20,000 products are available online. Yeah. Which does not differentiate. That is actually a, a, a sales prevention slogan. It's negative differentiation. Right, right. And, and or, or the other one, I mean, the other ones are, we've been around since date X, right? You know, yep. since 1940, you're, you know, a Toronto area supplier of whatever. I mean, you see a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, and, and the, you know, what, what people are trying to convey with that is, Hey, we're here to stay. We're here for the long game. We're, we're trustworthy. We're trustworthy. Right, we're trustworthy. There you go. In, in a nutshell. Um, but it's it's very precious real estate. The tagline. Right. And there are other ways to con- there are other places to convey how long you've been around. How about um, how about our, our people make the difference? And I know you like that one. Yeah, that's the other one, right? It's like somehow we found a better class of human beings than everybody else, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I mean, they're just not, look, if you're in the brand graveyard, all this, all these platitudes about when we were founded and how many products we carry and how great our people are, 
is not differentiating. It's just, or what you need when you need it. And, you know, since I believe most distribution brands are in the brand graveyard with some customers and prospects, probably with most, then, you know, this kind of messaging is not helping them get out, right? And, and the other thing, just generally speaking, is they're all about you, right? I mean, the, you know, if you think about the great taglines, they're not typically about the company, they're about the customer, right? So when Nike says, just do it, they're not saying Nike's going to just do it. They're saying, you just do it. And, you know, we get the stuff to help you. And, and I, I could go through a bunch of examples, but you get, get the gist. There's this automatic assumption that the tagline should be some maximum reduction of the value proposition. It's a maximum deduct, deduction of a description about what we do. Yeah, and I think, I think where you and I are coming to in this branding value prop work that we do for distributors is that the tagline, more often than not, should be about the customer. The value proposition is about the company, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, you have to tell people what you do, but the tagline itself, you know, really needs to be about, the, uh, really should in most cases. I mean, not that there aren't good taglines that are about the company, but they're, they're rare, you know? I mean, the Coke is it, it's fine. Granger's tagline, you know, the, I don't even know if they're using it anymore. They were for a while um, for the ones who get it done, right? That was for the, that was, that was for their customers. It wasn't about them. That's uh, another one that our colleague Jim Tenzalo led. Did he? Huh. Yeah. Um, how about um, big enough to matter, small enough to care? What, what's, what's the virtue in that? And what's the downside in that? I don't think it's differentiating at all. So I think the virtue, I mean, there's nothing wrong. That's like saying we're honest. It's like, okay, okay, well, it's table stakes, right? So you have to be big enough to matter in order to service me and small enough to care in order for me to get great service. So, you know, it's just a, it's just a, a generic claim, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's right in there with, uh, we're not bankrupt. Uh, we're honest people. Um, we we're sell stuff. Bandits. We sell stuff. I mean, you know, it just doesn't, it's not differentiating. See, I, I have a slightly different perspective. I mean, I think the, the small enough to, the care thing is not necessarily bad. I mean, you're saying our levels of customer service or customization um, is, is higher. Uh, we also have enough skill to get things done. Um, so the concept of personalized service is actually a good message. Yeah, but but it's, more, it's more helpful to specify how it is that you're able to personalize or customize, right? What, what are the things that you're able to do at higher levels uh, what does it mean to the customer that I'm small enough to care? So I think, I think the, the, the concept is not a bad one, but I think how it actually gets expressed it needs to be in different language than big enough to matter, small enough to care. Yeah. So someone, uh, someone weighed in, this is Joe, another friend of the show by saying uh, problem with that one is a million companies use that line. And, yeah. All, all, all these ones that we're mentioning are, are a bit hackneyed. And, right. um, and so what, what I'm, what I'm trying to distinguish here is, you know, the underlying message versus the actual copy, right? Right. In some of these, there may be virtue to the underlying message. It needs to be stated differently. That's a great point. I think that's exactly right. I mean, look, you know, this is really hard stuff to get right, okay? And there's expertise required. And so it's no mystery that most marketers in general, including distributors, get it wrong. It's not like, you know, there are a whole bunch of consumer brands that do not position their, themselves very well, right? You know, they're not differentiated. And, uh, and so this is really hard stuff to do. So I'm not denigrating anyone for not getting it done right. What I think bothers me is there's not an attempt to do it right by engaging the right process and, and expertise, which is you know not a pitch for consulting. It's just a reality of it. We have another comment. Jonathan, do you want to read this for us? 
when you go to market through salespeople, it's important to understand how they represent the brand. Man, this is yeah, that's exactly on. right. Yeah. Often the customer's perception is shaped by, in parentheses, only what their rep talks with them about. If the rep prefers or is comfortable selling X, Y, and Z, that can artificially limit artificially limit what customers consider you for. Yeah. So when we go back to this example of selling other product categories, yeah. one of the limitations often is that the salesperson doesn't have the skills to sell those other product categories or the other brands, right? They know certain things, they've gotten th certain things that they go to. So she closes by saying, marketers should help close the gap with digital print phone tactics while working with reps to help them expand the universe to better serve customers. This is from a true and serious B2B marketer. Thank you. Lisa. Yeah, that's, it's fantastic, right? I mean, that belongs on our slides, right? So, I mean, you know, we didn't think of it, but <laughs> I'm glad you contributed that. That's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, how many sales reps are not comfortable selling, you know, different lines of products? I mean, even your very best reps in a broadline company are not confident in selling certain lines of products. And so marketing does really need to close the gap. And someone else commented, yes, to agree with our previous comments. So thanks for that for, to both of you. Um, um, Ian, we've got, we've got one more um, sort of hackneyed uh, tagline that I wanted to throw on the table. Okay. Um, your project, our priority, mm. or, or your, your X, our Y. Yeah. What, what do you think of that, that type of messaging? What's, what are they trying to convey and, and, and where can that be constructive or how should that be uh, uh, modified to get to be uh, helpful? I think unless you're really a niche provider or something where that's meaningful, it, you know, you're just saying what's important to you is important to me. And uh, I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly compelling. I mean, I think first of all, you can only get your tagline to do so much, right? Mm -hmm. That's one consideration. The second one is your tagline is never consumed alone on a slide by itself, right? So it's always in context. So, you know, your tagline is probably on a truck with your goods on the back or it's on a, it's on a piece of marketing that shows the stuff that you sell uh, or it's, you know, on a sign on a yard, you know, so don't try to feel like the tagline's got to carry the whole weight of the marketing messaging because it's the combination of your name and your tagline, the context in which it's displayed and all the other marketing you do, that adds up to the branding message. And so you can't, you know, if, if you know you want a tagline that contributes to that as much as possible, but you're not going to have it carry the entire weight. Right. Um, and Joe said, "So many cliche lines. Meaningful and honest is hard." Yeah, that's it. You know, it's like, are you? How are you really different? And can you live up to it? Uh, so I, I agree with you, Joe. You know, it's 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 easy to make big claims, but they backfire if people interact with you and you know that's a negative. It's like when you're traveling and you see a sign for a gas station that says clean restrooms and you go there and the restrooms are a mess you feel like you've been duped right <laughs> you know and it's the same thing when it comes to uh, experiencing brands and, and other lines where you know it's like if you're going to claim it you better live up to it particularly in b2b because these aren't one-time purchases you're looking for relationships you want people to come back over time okay uh so a couple updates one is that uh our series with the NAW proceeds. The first report is up and available. Uh, we're doing seven white paper, excuse me, seven research reports and seven webinars for the NAW. We, uh, NAW, we released the first paper, which is uh, how technology will transform wholesale distribution. Um, and we've already done the webinar. You can watch it for free if you go to NAW.org. Um, and this actually is in the rotating banner at the top of their website as of the date of recording this webinar. So it should be easy for you 
to access this information. Uh, we're about to release the second white paper and the second webinar will happen on uh, August 18th. And this is a survey that we did of distributors asking them how they're using it and will continue to use or not uh, artificial intelligence and other breakthrough technologies. So the survey results are fascinating. Uh, Jonathan, I just finished writing that research report um, and uh, that webinar will be on August 18th. Um, okay. Uh, I think that's all for now. Our, our contact information is on there. We encourage you to reach out. You can reach us online at distributionstrategy.com or our email addresses are there or just give us a call. In any case, Jonathan, it was great work working with you again today. Feeling is ever mutual. <laughs> well, thank you. So thanks very much for attending Wholesale Change. We appreciate you dialing in. Please share this show with your friends on social media uh, and in other channels so that we can build our attendance too. Thanks a lot for joining us and have a wonderful balance of the week. Bye now.